Okay, so anybody get anything for Easter? Any gifts for Easter? Nobody got any gifts for Easter? I didn't either, so. Easter Bunny, forget you. That's what we say this morning. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Have you ever received a gift from somebody that just made you go because you know how much it cost? And not, not, not in a bad way, not like, oh, I know that only costs you 30 cents, but I mean something, <laughs> something big. You know it costs a lot because something you might have been eyeballing or something for a while and you thought, I'll never be able to get that, and somebody gives it to you. How humbling, how humbling is it to know that someone not only thought about you, because it's the thought that counts, right? But they counted the cost of the pricey stuff and said, yes, this person is definitely worth that and probably so much more. I can look back at a few things. Now, my earliest memory about this, I may have already shared this at some point in my illustrious speaking career here as I bear my soul about G.I. Joe and things like that. I remember probably the most overwhelmed with a gift that I've ever been in my life. We got any He-Man fans in here? Any Masters? Oh, right. Two of you. Three of us. I remember... Ripping the paper open and seeing Castle Grayskull. Now, it was probably like 30 bucks or something, but at that age, at that point in my life, it was the greatest thing ever. I mean, brain exploding. You know, if, the, if we had video cameras back then, which we didn't, uh, we had those little 8-millimeter tapes, but... <laughs> But if we'd, have had, if we'd have had video cameras back then, it would have been one of those America's Funniest Home Video moments because I was just, I mean, it was like, take my breath away. So that's, that's kind of my, my thought there. But every, pretty much every Christmas at my house, not like my immediate family, but my parents and Amanda's parents is like that every year. I'm just in shock of how much money our family spend at Christmas. And I know how much money they spent because I'm looking at all this stuff. Some of the stuff I've picked out, some of, it's, some of it's not. And I'm going, I can't believe these people would spend that much money on me. Now, I know it's not the point of Christmas, of knowing how much people. But when you know how much they spend and it just overwhelms you, I'm telling you, every Christmas is like that. Box after box, package after package, slack jaw after slack jaw. The paper piles up. You know, you got boxes everywhere, and I'm just shaking my head and just thinking, I'm just overwhelmed, not because of the money, but because of the money, if that makes sense. And I know that's kind of, most of the time I know how much the stuff costs because I've spent time shopping for the things to put on my list, and I'm amazed that someone would spend that much money on me. And again, that may sound a little superficial, but the cost is not overlooked. And right or wrong, it adds to my appreciation of the stuff I get. Because I know somebody spent their money on me. Now, I know that looking at prices of gifts is not an extremely healthy habit to have, but I do believe knowing can be humbling. Our passage today points directly at the price tag that Jesus paid in his journey to earth, his journey to the cross, and also the return on his investment that he received for himself and for us. Let's turn our attention to this amazing section of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 5 through 11. And if you were here last week, we'll re if you weren't here last week, we're going to touch on this real briefly, what we talked about last week, 
and how it ties into what we're looking at this week. Last week we looked at this passage specifically at the end, kind of as a, since this is true, then this is how you do this. This passage today we're going to delve into much deeper so that we can see the nuts and bolts and again, just be overwhelmed at the cost of what Jesus did for us. What I want to do is, like we did last week, I want to read this out loud together. Uh, this is the ESV. If you've got the ESV, you can just look down at your Bible. If you don't, let's read this out loud together. I love the auditory mouth, eyes, ears part of it. I wish we could read in Braille so that we could feel it. I mean, it's just every sense you can explore to get this into your system is worth it. So let's read this together. Philippians 2, 5-11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, again, we come to a, a part of Scripture that could be completely overwhelming and could completely fry our circuits, God, if we would get a hold of it. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, God, that you would get a hold of us so that we can get a hold of it. We need your help, and we know that you love to give it. So we ask for it and expect it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Let me briefly point this. This will be a, a, a one-minute overview of what we looked at last week. In the first part of Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, we looked at Paul's call for the Philippians to be unified. And he said that, I want you to complete my joy by being of one mind, by having unity among yourselves. And what we looked at was the basis of unity is what we received when we were saved, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, we received affection and sympathy. And since we have these things, we can move on to see what unity really looks like. And we looked at the basics of unity. And basically it boils down to this. He says to treat other people as more important than yourself. And to do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing. And I'm, it's just one of those statements, one of those all-encompassing statements that just makes me stop and say, really, nothing, not a warm bath, not a good meal, do nothing from selfish ambition. And we can't be unified if we don't count other people as more important than ourselves. And, and the basics of unity comes down to this. We've got to have one purpose. We've got to be of the same mind, have the same purpose, and that purpose is the glory of God. Because... God himself is about the glory of God. Everything God's done for you was done for his glory. So that the world would see his glory. And I promise you guys, God himself is consumed with this one thing. God himself is consumed with his own glory. Therefore, we should be consumed with his glory. The old saying says, nothing 
unites people like a common enemy. I don't know that that's quite as true as nothing unites the church as much as being concerned about the glory of God and nothing else. Everything I do, I do what I do for the glory of God. Scripture goes, and I've quoted this verse millions of times, whether you're eating or drinking or any such thing, do all to the glory of God. Any, any such, and again, when I sit down at Compestre and I want to put a straw in the cheese and drink it because it's so good, I'm really not thinking about the glory of God so much as I'm thinking about my, that inch, inch and a half section of my tongue that is my taste buds. Now, I can glorify God through that, but I've got to have everything I do from the time I wake up in the morning to the time I lay down at night, and I've got to be concerned about the glory of God. If we're going to be unified as a church, this has to be our one priority. Not our first priority. Not first among many. This has to be our priority. That's the basics of unity. And then, how does that happen? The source of unity is what, we're going to, is what we looked at at the end of this outline. And it is the fact that we have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2.5 Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that mind is what we're going to explore today. And it is a mind that is centered on humility. Now, we think of humility as some guy who stands in the corner and hangs his head and does this when people cuss him or something. That's not humility. Humility is strength under control. Think wild Mustang that lets you ride him bareback. Think tidal wave that doesn't come crashing up on the shore. That's humility. Incredible strength harnessed for the right reason. Okay? That's humility. Controlled strength. It's not... Poor sissy can't defend himself. It's, I could call 10,000 legions of angels right now, but I choose not to because I want to do the Father's will. That's humility. Okay? What we're going to explore today is what that looks like in this passage that we just read. So, I need some Vanna White type music while I erase my board. I, I want to keep that up there. Lily always says you want me to erase the board for you. And I'm usually like, yeah, I'm like, no, let's wait a second because I want to cover that again. And again, love the visual part of it. So, we're going to look at, of course, a good three-point outline based on Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And that outline looks like this. <clears throat> we're going to see a three-step process that Jesus went through in this passage. We're going to see how it applies to our lives, okay? Our journey through this paragraph will show us the pre-scripted movement of Jesus for our redemption. And it comes in three stages. Jesus existed. As sovereign. Second step is Jesus empty. As slave. And Jesus exalted. My word right. That's the prayer. And again, the E and the S stuff is just to help you remember. It's not to be clever. It's not so that you can walk out and say, man, that Jason, he's a smart guy. It's, it's not the point, okay? It's just to help you remember. Jesus existed as sovereign. Jesus emptied as slave. Jesus exalted as supreme, okay? I believe we'll see through these points the extravagant price that Jesus Christ paid for our salvation and I think we'll come to appreciate that cost all the more, which will move us to exercise the mind that is ours in Him. Have this mind in yourselves, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So first, we'll look at Jesus' existence as God. 
Jesus' existence as God from eternity past, which is point one, Jesus existed as sovereign. Look at verse 5 and 6 of Philippians 2. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now we'll look at the grasped thing in our next point. But focus with me on the statement, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, dot, dot, dot. Paul is making a staggering statement here. Who is Jesus Christ is answered by the question, who was Jesus Christ? Okay, let me say that again. Who is Jesus Christ? Because listen, I'm not crazy enough to believe that you came in here this morning with a full understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Some of you may be sitting here and it's Easter. You go to church on Easter, that's what you do. Some of you have been sitting here, you've been in church all your life, but you still wrestle with the question, who is Jesus Christ? I hope you wrestle with that question because it's a question worth wrestling with. But I think that question can be answered by the question, who was Jesus Christ? Okay? Before Jesus became a human being, where was he? Who was he? God. It's true. Now, okay, let me, let me not get ahead of myself. Before Jesus became a human, he existed in the form of God is what Paul just said. Okay? Jesus was God. Now, there are several verses we could look at to confirm this. And what I want you to do, if you're taking notes, write down these passages because I'm just going to read through them. Okay? The first one is John, the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John 1, 1 through 3. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 19. And Titus 2, 11 through 14. I'll read those again. John 1, 1 through 3. Colossians 1, 15 through 19. And Titus 2, 11 through 14. Now listen to these. I'm going to read them kind of all together to give us the answer to the question, who was Jesus and who is Jesus? According to Scripture. Now, I stand here today firmly convinced that the Bible that we have in our lap, on our computers, wherever you have it, is the inspired Word of God, which means that it is God-breathed, that it's the very Word of God. It's the revelation of God to man saying, God's way of saying, this is who I am. This is what I want you to know about me. I believe that we base truth on Scripture. The old Rich Mullins song said, I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. That's where I stand on Scripture. Now, I don't know where you are on that continuum. You may say, well, there's some good stories, there's some good teachings. I believe wholeheartedly that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and that I need to live my life according to what Scripture says. I need to be shaped by Scripture, not put my opinion on the Scripture. So, who does the Bible say that Jesus Christ was? Let me read these passages that I just uh, read off there. In the beginning was the Word, capital W Word, so it's a person. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Okay, so the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this passage is clearly talking about Jesus Christ if you'll go on through the rest of John, through the rest of the book of John. So let me read it like that. In the beginning was the Christ. Now, don't stone me yet. And the Christ was with God, and the Christ was God. So that's Jesus. 
The next passage in Colossians says, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. That does not mean that He was born first and then all creation come after Him because He existed eternally. He is the source of creation is literally what it means. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's a huge statement. The fullness of God existed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's not just a good moral teacher. That's God in the flesh. And then the last passage is Titus 2, 11-14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen to that statement again. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God equals Jesus. Okay, I think from those three passages alone, and there's many more, but those three passages alone make it pretty clear that this guy, Jesus, that we think about, with a halo around his head, in a robe, with sandals on, or hanging on a cross, was God. We could go on further, but these verses give us a pretty clear idea of how the Bible describes who Jesus Christ was before, during, and after his earthly ministry. He, he was in the beginning with God. He was God. By him all things were created. By him and for him. And he is our great God and Savior. Now, stop and think about this for just a minute. Jesus was God. Let that sink in. Because we live in a culture that tells us something different. I'm afraid that we don't realize this and what it means for every other doctrine that we look at, especially what we're looking at today. There is no person, no thing that was created either by or for God. Think, let that sink in too. There is no person, no thing that was not created either by or for God. What exists is for His glory. Remember this, you can still kind of see it there. Ingrain that vision in your mind that everything is for the glory of God. So before Jesus became a human, He was equal with the same as God. Remember Paul's words, though He was in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God. As God, in the form of God, Equal with God. These words describe Jesus who existed as sovereign. Okay? Now, having seen this, again, stop and ponder it for a second. Jesus Christ was God, was with God. Everything was created by Him, through Him, for Him, in Him. All things hold together. And take that and move on to our next point. That He emptied or was emptied as a slave. And I think here we start to see the cost involved in what Jesus did to come here. Jesus was with God. He was equal to God. He was God before he came here. Now watch the movement. Go back to Philippians chapter 2, and let's start in verse 6 and go through verse 8. 
Philippians 2.6, who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that passage includes an interesting phrase. It says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now what's that all about? The word grasped means, it's hard to say it, grasped. It's like you want to throw a T or a B in there somewhere. The word grasped means to deem anything as a prize, a thing to be seized upon or held fast or retained. Now, <laughs> a friend of mine uh, at Advanced Auto Parts has a little boy who's three and his wife is pregnant and they just found out that they're having another little boy and the little boy was excited to be having a brother. He didn't want a sister, he wanted a brother. And then he made this statement. He said, I'm real excited, but I am not going to share my toys. <laughs> Declaration made. Of course, his dad said, I think you will, but he said, no, I will not. What, what he's doing there is taking his toys and he's saying, these are mine. These are going to be grasped, held as a prize, kept for myself, retained, held fast. So, let's plug these thoughts into the text. Jesus did not regard equality with God. He existed as sovereign. He didn't regard equality with God as a thing that was his prize. His equality with God was not his toys that he wasn't going to share with anyone else. Okay? His equality with God was not something to be held fast to or retained. There was something he wanted more than equality with God. Something that took precedence over him holding on to his privilege as the co-equal reigning ruling son of God. And what was that that he wanted? Now listen, we quote this passage a lot, but again, I don't know that we truly understand the cost involved in it. John 3, 16. We're actually going to read John 3, 16 and John 3, 17. So 16 and 17 out of John 3. Listen to this. Listen. Because it's going to give us the answer of what Jesus wanted more than to hold on to his existence as sovereign. Co-equal with God, reigning and ruling in heaven. I'm going to read it. Please try to pull down your cultural lens. Try to pull down your familiarity with this and listen Thinking about a God, uh, Christ who existed as God and who emptied himself as a slave. Why did he do it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, I'm going to ask you what may be a trick question. Maybe you know. Maybe you've never thought about it. Who spoke those words that I just read? Jesus himself. If you've got a red letter Bible, those words are written in red. Jesus is having a discussion with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he's going through this great discourse. John 3 is an amazing passage, but Jesus himself is speaking these words. Now, think about that again as I'm reading it. Think about it. This is not John's commentary on a conversation that Jesus was having. This is Christ himself speaking. And this is what Jesus said. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Jesus himself was talking to Nicodemus and said this. And what is he saying his purpose was to empty himself and to come into the world? Why? Why did he do that? For God so... <clears throat> for God so loved the world. Because God loved us so much, he made a way for us to have eternal life with him and not be condemned but saved. God loves us that much. And who is God? God is God. Who is God? Jesus is basically saying here, because I love this world so much, I came into the world to die for the world. So that if anybody would believe in me, they wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I come into the world that, that the world might have life and they might have it in me. Jesus is God. Now, back in 1 John... No, let me, let me aside a second, okay? My wife hates these things being up on the wall. These teaching things that I've scribbled out. And she was up here putting this stuff up the other day. And she sent me a text. She said, can we take down the things off the wall yet? I'm like, really? We've got one month here. I mean, can we not leave them up for one month? I said, actually, there's one or two up on the wall that I want to use this week. If you would just leave them this week, maybe we can take them down after week. I said, I appreciate your understanding. Her reply was, I don't understand, but I will submit. <laughs> so, God bless her. <laughs> now, um, it's right here, and I thought there was another one. Oh, yeah. I will get to that one. Back in 1 John, we talked about the uh, doctrine of the incarnation and how it was so central to everything else that we talked about in the rest of Scripture. And the doctrine of the incarnation says that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And that's important. Here, we see the Son of God not grasping or holding on to His divine rights, but becoming a person to accomplish the will of God, which was our salvation. Okay? Now, please don't misread what this means. It wasn't that Jesus gave, us, gave up His godness to come to earth. Okay? It wasn't like, okay, I'll empty myself and be a person. That's true, he did that, but he didn't give up his godness to become a person. He was fully God and he was fully man. Nobody else could say that ever in history. Nobody else in history will ever be able to say that again. Jesus Christ himself is the only one. I love what J. Vernon McGee said. He said that Jesus was as much God when he was a baby at Mary's breast as he was when he was speaking the world into existence. So here's the baby Christ... Nursing at his mother's breast, and he's very God of very God, very man of very man. Now that's important to remember because he didn't just empty himself. We've got to figure out what he emptied himself of to see what this involved when he emptied himself as a slave. He did not lose any of his divinity. It wasn't like, okay, I won't be God for 33 years. And that the Father and the Spirit were up there going, oh man, where's Jesus? We really miss Him. This, he's always been part of this thing. Now He's a person. That's not what was going on. If that sounds irreverent, I don't mean it irreverent. Okay? So the second, member, the second part of the Trinity was as much God and the Trinity was fully intact when Christ was on the earth as He was when He reigned in heaven before. That's very important to realize. His emptying did not involve losing any of his divinity. Remember Colossians 1.19? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And that includes his life on the earth. So what did he empty himself of? 
The rest of this part of the passage gives us the idea that we need here. Look back at Philippians 2, 7 through 8. Now listen. Remember where he came from and listen to this. But emptied himself, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His emptying involved God the Son taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men and humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, that thought would be amazing enough if it was me or you that did it. If I did something like this, if, if somebody was to make themselves a servant to someone and be willing to die a horrible, violent death to the benefit of the very ones who were killing them, that would be amazing. Say one of the victims, families of what Jeffrey Dahmer did. What if they stepped up and said, I want to serve Jeffrey Dahmer for the rest of his life and my life. I'll even lay down my life and die for his sins. Now, would that not be amazing? Somebody who would have that much love, that much motivation. We, we can't fathom that. Now, wait a second. It would be amazing if we did it. What if God did it? What if God did it? For someone to make themselves a servant. If we did it, it would be amazing. But look at the cost here. Who was doing this? God Himself was doing this. God, who exists for His own glory and is the originator of life and who deserves the praise of every man, woman, child, angel, and demon in the universe, emptied Himself of His divine rights to be praised and adored, to come to earth, walk as a man, serve His creation, and even die a brutal, torturous death at the hands of a sea of humanity who mocked Him and hung Him on a Roman cross in first century Palestine. God Himself did that. Think of the leap. Think of the height that he came from and then the depths that he went to. God himself. Can you stop for just a minute and consider the cost here? We have nothing to compare it to. Nothing. C.S. Lewis tried when he offered this in Mere Christianity. This is what he said. Did you ever think when you were a child what fun it would be if your toys could come to life? Well, suppose you could really have brought them to life. Imagine turning a tin soldier into a real little man. It would have involved turning the tin into flesh. And suppose the tin soldier did not like it. He's not interested in flesh. All he sees is that the tin is being spoilt. He thinks you're killing him. He will do everything he can to prevent you. He will not be made into a man if he could help it. What would you have done about that tin soldier? I do not know. But what God did about us was this. The second person in God, the Son, became human himself, was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of particular height, with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stones. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that, a baby, and before that, a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, Lewis says, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. And even that doesn't do it full justice. We'd have to be a speck of dust on the back of a flea's back to even get an idea of what this was like. 
Oh, when we take it for granted, ah, Jesus became a man. Whoa. Who became a man? God Himself became a man. Very God of very God not only became what He created, He put Himself under the judgment of that creation as they charged Him with treason and called Him who knew no sin guilty. All the while, the Scriptures say He never spoke a word in His own defense. He even prayed on the cross for His executioner's pardon, saying that they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know that they were actually fulfilling the will of God Himself, who from eternity past, when He existed as sovereign, had determined that the only answer to the depravity of man was a cross where He would hang to pay the penalty for their sin, not His. This blameless, spotless lamb was being slain according to the foreknowledge and very plan of God Himself who had decreed that it would be so before the world was formed. Another passage that we use a lot or that we hear a lot, especially around this time, is Isaiah 53. And this Isaiah 53 details this for us, what we just talked about. And it says this. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 10 of Isaiah 53. It says this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now remember who this is talking about. God Himself. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he's not done. Listen. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. But oppression and judgment. He was by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Listen to the last verse. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now again, stop and ponder that last statement, in light of the thought that this was God in the flesh. If it was the will of the Lord to crush him, who was crushing who? God, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, crushing himself. It was the will of the Lord to crush the Lord. He has put him or himself to grief. Oh, stop and think of the great cost of the Lord emptying himself and laying down his life for you. Existed as sovereign, 
emptied a slave. And why? Here's where it all comes together. Here's the reason. Our third point is Jesus exalted as supreme. And it's like my spirit inside me just feels like John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb. Just jumping for joy because this is what it's all about. This is fantastic. This is unbelievable if it wasn't for the Spirit of God. This is the reason you draw breath today. Here's the reason. Jesus exalted as supreme. Go back to last week for a second. If you wasn't here, I'm sorry. But we did talk about it here in this circle that will not erase. Praise God, it will not erase. God has one main concern. What is it? I gave you the answer before we start. What is His glory. God's chief concern is God's glory. As much as He loves us and does what He does to benefit us, His chief purpose in loving us is His glory. Look back at Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Listen. He existed as sovereign. He emptied Himself as a slave. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We celebrate the resurrection today, and we should. But what is the resurrection all about? It's about God the Father exalting God the Son by bestowing upon Him the name that is above every name. <laughs> and how did He do that? Again, if you're taking notes, write down Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it. You don't have to turn there. How did Jesus get the name that was above every other name? How did God bestow that name upon Him? I believe Romans 1, 1 through 6 answers that question. I'm going to read the whole six verses because the context is important. Paul says this in his introduction to this amazing letter of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, in the passage, how was Jesus declared to be the Son of God in power? By His resurrection from the dead. Jesus' humiliation was complete when He breathed His last and was buried. It looked like He had been defeated. But, I'm real proud of this phrase, by the way. I'm sorry. I'm real proud. As I wrote it, I'm like, this, that's really cool. His death was short-lived. God acted in mighty power and raised Jesus from the dead. Why? To show that the last enemy had been conquered. Beginning here, beginning at the resurrection, God started the exalting 
of the humble Christ and culminated that exaltation when He took Him back into heaven 40 days later. Paul gives us a clear picture of this in Ephesians 1, verses 17 through 23, where he says this. Ephesians 1, 17 through 23, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. I cannot take all that in. But this is what it comes down to. God exalted Christ to the highest place after His resurrection. Every name, every authority, every principality, every place in the universe looks to Christ as supreme. Hitler will look to Christ as supreme. These people in North Korea who are exalting themselves above the nations one day will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. He put all things under His feet. And that passage sounds a lot like our Philippians passage as Paul says that beginning with the resurrection, God began showing the entire creation that Jesus was to be the center of, a center of attention for all eternity. He exalted Him, it says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And why? Why did He do that? Why did He put Christ in that place? Our Philippians passage says it's for one purpose, and that's at the end of verse 11 in Philippians 2, to the glory of God the Father. Again, know for certain that this is God's plan. God demands the worship of the Son who is very God of very God so that God's glory can be best displayed. The pre-existent Son who emptied Himself of divine privilege while He was on the earth was exalted to the highest place possible so that God could be best shown to all the universe as worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Yes, the horrible cost of Isaiah 53 had to be paid, but that chapter doesn't stop with verse 10. Back in Isaiah 53, we saw the last statement that we, that we read was, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now listen to the last two verses after that. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now listen. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Because 
He existed as sovereign, and because he emptied himself as a slave, Jesus Christ was exalted as supreme. And those divine rights that he didn't hold on to, that he didn't grasp, guess what God gave him back when he went into heaven? Those very same things and so much more. Because before he came to earth, nobody knew the name Jesus Christ. But when he went back to heaven, every tongue will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. It's God's plan. Isaiah paints a picture of a God who is glorified by bearing the sins of transgressors and creating out of them offspring who will sing his praises they will know that it was He Himself who bore their sins. He humbled, He Himself humbled, despised, rejected, taking the punishment for their sins in a human body so that they can have sinless perfection given to them. They will receive the benefits of righteousness because He ordained it to be so. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. And they will bow the knee before the Son of God and confess Him as Lord and God. And the Father will be glorified throughout eternity by the worship given through the Spirit. Through the Spirit-empowered worshipers who see the Son of God as supremely worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. He was at the very height of heights. He came to the very depths of depths. And He was exalted. Even, I don't know if he could have been higher than he was before. But do you see the cost involved? Do you see the return on investment involved in what Jesus did and what we just detailed through Philippians 2? So having seen Jesus Christ as existing as God, emptied as a slave, and exalted as sovereign, we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. First and foremost, do I know this man? Do I know Jesus Christ who existed as sovereign, who emptied himself as a slave and now is exalted as supreme? Do I know him? And if I do, and here you go, church, if you've been saved for years and you're going, yeah, I don't have any problem with Jesus being God. I don't have any problem with him emptying himself as a slave. If you do know him, if you do know that he is Lord and Christ, do you know the depths of his humility and the heights of his exaltation? And if you do, how is it going to affect your life right now? Because here's the thing. All this is pointless if it doesn't affect your life right now. All this means nothing if, it's, if it doesn't change the way you think, the way you speak, the way you touch things, the way you eat, drink, or do any such thing if you're not doing it to the glory and in the name of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it should move me to do just what Paul asked us to do back in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. It should move me to live like he lived. It should move me to love like he loved. Remember, Paul's ultimate reason for even bringing all this up was to call the Philippians and us to have this mind in ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. It's the whole point of him explaining all of this. Let me ask you a question, church. How are we doing here? Is this what your life looks like? 
Have you humbled yourself? Have you emptied yourself as a slave for the sake of those around you? Are you looking forward to being exalted with Christ? Now, Scripture says that we're seated with Him in the heavenly places, and one day, when we bow the knee, we will be given judgment. He said, do you not know that you'll judge angels? Is your mind and your heart fixed on that time when we will be exalted with Him, never to the same place that He is, but worshiping Him forever as we exalt Him as supreme? Is it changing your life now to the point that you're saying, I want to empty myself to be like Him? I want to go to the depths that He went to. I want to lay my life down. And you know where this is most pronounced? Men, I think it's in marriage. Have you laid your life down for your wife? Because here's the thing. Scripture calls us to love our wives just like Christ loved the church. And it is. Is this mine in you, husbands? Is this mine in you, wives? Is this mine in me for you guys? Because as Christ loved the church, God has placed a high priority on the church. Have I? He came to do this to purchase a group of people for himself. That group of people is the church. We should know our position of exaltation in him, but we have, but that should that should have us to move to a place of humility, a place of service to others, just like Jesus did when he paid the staggering price that he paid to be our example. And not just that. But the resurrection gives us the hope that we do have new life. We do have this mind. It is ours in Christ Jesus. We have His life in us so that we can live like He lived. Guys, this is Christianity. 101. Now you may be sitting here today and you may say, I don't know a thing about that. And I think you're pretty crazy to say that this guy who walked on earth was God in the flesh... Again, am I going to be conformed to Scripture? Am I going to try to conform Scripture to what I want it to believe? Here's the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. For God loved the world so much that God gave God to us so that we can take our sins to Him and if we trust that this man that we celebrate on this weekend as having been crucified, punished for our sins, Laid in the tomb. He was dead. The man Jesus was dead. And the third day, he came out of the tomb resurrected. Showed himself alive, Paul says later to, to the Corinthians, to over 500 people. And he says, most of these people are still alive. You can go ask them. More than 500 people saw this dead Jesus after he was raised to life. And he showed himself. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And we sang it. And one day, he's coming back. And you will give an account to the one who has been exalted as supreme. And your knee will bow and your tongue will confess him as Lord. But will you do it today? Will you do it right now? The gospel demands obedience from human beings. Are you living obediently to the gospel? And Jesus said, this is eternal life. That they would know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know this man today? Because the gospel demands that you know this man. And not just know this man, but live just like this man lived. And you can't do that without resurrection life. 
You can't do that till you have placed your faith in Him and said, God, I can't, but I believe you can. That's salvation. And we're all called to be obedient to that call to salvation. Where are you in that continuum? I want to offer you time today. We're going to sing a song as we wrap this up. If you do not know that you have bent the knee already to Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Now, I'm not an altar call guy. I'm not going to have you come forward. I'm not going to have you pray a prayer. I don't know that that's what being born again is all about. But I do want you to take the time and say, do I know this man? If you don't know this man, you can. Come and say, God, I'm a sinner. And I need forgiveness for my sin. And it is found in the person of Jesus Christ only. His sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty for my sin. And I trust that I'm not going to earn my way into heaven. I'm going to trust that what he did punched my ticket. I trust that that's salvation. That's being born again. And the Spirit of God moves into your life and gives you resurrection life. If you have been saved in the past, if you've been born again, and you want this to be your attitude, tell God that. I believe he loves it. I believe he loves to hear it. But let's take some time. We'll sing this song and give you the opportunity to respond to God and ask Him to do what only He can do, which is give you new life, give you the power to live that new life. Let me pray on this thing. God, we need Your Spirit. Every person in this building needs Your Spirit to move them right now, to draw them to you so that they can know you and the fullness of the life that you promised them. So, Spirit of God, would you convict men of their sins? Would you convict them and show them their need for righteousness? Would you show them the great cost that you paid to become a human, to hang on a cross, to bear their sins upon yourself, to bear my sins upon yourself. Very God of very God, holy, pure, spotless, blameless. Worthy of exaltation, but who emptied himself. And then would you give us eyes to see this humble Christ as the exalted Christ that we might bow the knee to him now. Draw us to yourself, God. So that you might get glory in and through us Now, 